The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Well, uh, Jacob has asked me to speak in this series. You guys are talking about values, uh, the different values that, that define who we are. That's so important because as we, as we go on mission, um, we're going to share Christ. We're going to represent Christ and who we are. So who we are is shaped by what we believe, what our key values are, what the scriptures teach us. So I think it's a great way to start as a, a church plan to kind of go through key values. So the value I was given is uh, that elder-led churches. So for us as Sovereign Grace Churches, we believe in the importance of elders. Uh, there's all sorts of other values that are important. There's values of the church and define what the body is supposed to be like. All those things um, I won't be able to touch on tonight, but I just want to talk about the importance of elder-led churches, how God uses elders. There's lots of places I could go in scripture. Uh, I had uh, for Jacob, a number of, of passages that I could have preached from on this topic. Uh, it's throughout Scripture. Actually, I, I would you can go throughout all of Scripture and look at how God has used leaders and really shepherds. This whole idea of shepherds is woven throughout Scripture. Um, and uh, so there's lots of places I go, but I, I want to go into Acts chapter 20 uh, for our time. Um, so we're going to look there in Acts chapter 20. This is a, a, a message, basically, that Paul shares with the Ephesian elders. So we'll be looking at chapter 20, verses 17 to 38. Um, and as you're turning there in your Bibles, um, <clears throat> just a little bit of background. If you read Acts 19, you'll see in Acts 19 that Paul went into Ephesus with his team. And, um, and actually, there were some people already there. He came in, and they preached the gospel. And as happens throughout the world and throughout history, as the good news of Christ is proclaimed, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone uh, who believes. And as that word is proclaimed, it, it has effect. And in Ephesus, it had a tremendous effect. Uh, and Paul's experience was mixed. Sometimes he went to places and there wasn't much effect. There was some and it was slow going. He went to Ephesus and it was just amazing what happened. The, the, the city and the whole region was really turned up. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, a big city. Maybe the modern-day equivalent would be something like New York City. So it's a major city, a major region. And um, a large portion of the population came to Christ. We don't know the exact number. Uh, it, could have been, it probably was measured at least in the tens of thousands, if not more. Um, the reason we said that is because the whole economy area actually shifted as a result of the effect of the gospel. The biggest, one of the bigger industries. This was tourism around the Temple of Artemis. Uh, this is one of the ancient wonders of the world, this huge place uh, where, where Artemis was worshipped, um, basically a, a version of Athena. Um, and so, so it was, people would come to worship, and there was industry built around that. And, and that industry, the, the, the uh, silversmiths and so forth, were being put out of business because so many people were coming to Christ and no longer worshipping in that temple. So it actually... Uh, affected so much that the economy shifted. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine uh, the gospel going into, say, New York City and so affecting New York City that maybe the Wall Street or the entertainment business or whatever it might be, Broadway or whatever you might want to pick, was shifted. It was changed dramatically. So much so that maybe the unions were protesting, you know, we don't like this change. Uh, that's what was going on in Ephesus. Uh, we also know that, that uh, a lot of people came to Christ because there were these occultic scrolls that were burned, uh, representing their repentance, their turning away from the old way to Christ. They burned these scrolls, and the value of those scrolls was so high that it would have required lots of people giving their scrolls to be burned. So 
a th you know, thousands or even tens of thousands of people. Um, so that's the background here. Uh, God, through the gospel, through Paul's ministry, had really turned the city upside down. <coughs> and so Paul was there, and then uh, he was there for about three years. He left that area, went back through Macedonia and Greece, and, and went back to kind of strengthen the churches, and then was going to go to Jerusalem. And on his way to Jerusalem, he decided to stop by Ephesus, uh, nearby, actually didn't go to Ephesus itself, but nearby, and he called his dear friends, the Ephesian elders, to come and visit him there. We don't know how many elders there were. There probably were a lot. If you have thousands of people, tens of thousands of believers, probably a lot. So the church in Ephesus would have been comprised, by the way, of many smaller churches, house churches throughout the whole city and throughout the region. Uh, so he calls his dear friends uh, to meet with him on what would be, uh, in his understanding, the final visit with with these elders. So that's the background here. So let's read um, chapter 19, um, chapter 20, I mean, verses 17 through uh, 38. Uh, let me pray first before we read the word. Ask the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this um, amazing account. And we thank you for the truths that are packed into this interchange between Paul and these elders. Lord, these are things you've preserved in your word because you want us to hear it, and you want us to hear it tonight. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help me to proclaim your word, to teach your word, and we ask you, God, um, Holy Spirit, would you come and empower us to listen and be changed by you through your word. Again, thank you for your living word, and do your work as we meet in your name, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm getting older, over uh, flu and cold myself. Yeah. Um, I'm glad I'm not amplified. I, I've got some water, so. Anyhow, starting in verse 17, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaim the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore I testify to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all, this, all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. God's word from Acts chapter 20. Back in 19, uh, two, I mean 2011 in March, um, my dad passed away. I was able to spend a wonderful week with him, actually, right before he passed. And, and um, it was an incredible gift from God. I didn't know for sure at the time whether he you know, was going to get better or not, so it wasn't clear to me that that was his last week. But I knew he wasn't doing well, and I knew it might be the last week. And I had a wonderful time with my dad in that last week. Um, we talked about lots of things. We talked about light things. We talked uh, about Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and Sudoku and so forth. But we also talked about getting ready to die. And I asked him if he was ready. And we got to talk about Christ together. I got to read him from the Gospel of John, the different accounts where Jesus talked about who he was, the I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. And it was wonderful to interact with my dad about those things. And I believe that he was ready. He had trusted Christ and was ready to meet the Lord. It was a gift. And it was an important time because it was the last time I, I got to be with my dad. What might you say to someone if you realized it was your last week with that person or your last moments with that person? What would you say? What would you want to say? What would you tell your family if you had a week if, to talk to them? What would you tell your friends? What would you tell your church? What would you talk about? What would you say? What would be the things you'd highlight? I don't think you'd just be talking about sports and the weather. You'd be talking about the things that are most meaningful, the things that are most important to you and to them. Well, in our passage in Acts 20, this is Paul's last moments with these Ephesian elders. And he wants them to hear what he believes is most important for them. And really, not just for them, it's for the church, the church that he loves, the people that he loves in Ephesus. It's, it's telling that Paul, in this last moment that he's going to have, he calls these, the elders to come and meet with him. And he tells them really the most important things he wants them to know, really the, the most important things for the church in Ephesus. He loves these people. He wants to see them thrive. He wants to see them succeed. He wants to see this church succeed. He understands that for the church in Ephesus that the elders, the shepherds, and I'm using those words interchangeably because scripture does, these shepherds are really the future of the church, the future of the health of that church. And so he wants to instruct them. And so he takes time to talk about the shepherd's life from his own life. He talks about his life. 
He takes time to talk about the shepherd's charge, what the shepherd is responsible for. He takes time to talk about the shepherd's challenge, and then he takes time to talk about the shepherd's confidence. So those four things are what I want to talk about as we go along here. <coughs> Understanding that Paul understands the importance of shepherds for the future of the church. So first, the shepherd's life. If you look at the passage here, you'll see Paul talks about himself a good bit. And you might think, well, boy, he's just kind of narcissistic or something. He wants to talk about himself. No, if you follow Paul's life, you'll see that he's very strategic in what he talks about himself. And at times, actually, in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he'll actually talk about himself in, in a demeaning way of sorts. He does this elsewhere in, in 1 Timothy 2. He uses what he says, actually, to, to instruct people, to teach them about the life of the believer and the life of the shepherd, using his own life as an example. So that's what he's doing here. He's, he's using his own life to talk about what it looks like for somebody who is a shepherd of the sheep, what their life looks like. And so some of the things he talks about, about himself, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. <coughs> In verse 31, he says, he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And then he, at the end, knelt down with these elders and prayed with them and cried with them. He was a man who, who had an affection, a love for these people. He loved these elders. He loved this church, its people. And he showed that in his tears, his, his tears shed, his, his compassion for them, his love for them, his affection for them. A godly elder, a shepherd, a biblical shepherd, cries for God's people. A godly elder, a, a biblical elder, a shepherd, carries God's people on his heart. A godly elder is heartbroken when God's people stumble and struggle. A shepherd after God's own heart grieves with those who grieve in the church. This is Paul's example for the Ephesian elders and, and really God's instruction to us that, that a shepherd, a shepherd's life is to show a, a heart of compassion and love, a heartfelt love for God's people. But it's not just emotion. It's, Paul's just not somebody who kind of cries over everything and has an emotional empathy. He's also someone who worked very hard among God's people. So there was this coupling of a genuine heart, but also hands that were active and caring and laboring for the good of God's people in Ephesus. So he tells them he did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. And night and day he labored to meet with them, to instruct them, to teach them about the gospel, to model for them and help them understand how to apply these things and walk in these things. And he did this amidst some real challenges, some real trials. It wasn't easy. There was persecution going on. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, actually, Paul talks about some of the difficulties he faced, and he, and he, he uh, is very candid about his struggles. He says something profound there in 2 Corinthians 1.8. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. This would have been Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. There was a suffering that Paul went through 
in his labors in Ephesus. We don't know what happened. We, we don't know the details. We know that there was persecution. We know that there were uh, attacks of sorts. But we don't know really what was going on. Was there a threat to his life? Was there just a dark spiritual attack? Was there a combination? We don't know. But we know it was so severe that this man who, who had faced death and had been stoned and faced all these things, uh, dealing with these burdens, was utterly burdened beyond his strength with the whole team and despaired of life itself. So his labors and his tears were amidst trials and difficulty and sacrifice. And he continued in these things for the sake of the church, for the sake of his Savior. He worked hard, actually. He continued to work and labor night and day in public and private, in easy times and hard times, preaching and teaching, loving the people of God, calling them to faith and repentance. Now, Paul, in his trials, was somewhat unique. There's no other apostles of the Gentiles at this point. There was just Paul. So there's some uniqueness to this, but he's also telling the Ephesian elders these things, not to say, well, I'm unique, so this doesn't apply to you. He's, no, he's instructing them. He's modeling to them what they're called to and how they are, ought to live and what they should expect in pastoral ministry. And by the way, as we go along through all this, um, it's instructive for us in many ways, these truths about elder-led leadership, Acts 20. In many ways, it's instructive for us if you are someone who is feeling called to be a pastor, to understand what the scripture teaches and, and the sort of lifestyle we're, we're called to. But it's also instructive to the rest of us um, who may not be called uh, but are part of the church because God always uses the context of his church to raise elders up. And, and we're all part of that process. So identifying these truths and understanding these truths and, and being able to understand the process, what God does and what he's calling them to is really important because we're part of the process of raising them up. And we're part of the ones who will evaluate and affirm, indeed, this one is called. That, that affirmation of the church is vital for the life, the call of the pastor. So all these things are instructive in all, all these ways. And also just to recognize that everything a pastor is called to in terms of character and fundamental aspects of the Christian life, all Christians are called to. Not all Christians are called to lead in that way or teach in the way a pastor is, but, but the, the aspects of living in the gospel and finding our life in Christ and laboring for him, we're all called to these things. So just to help you as, as we go through this to understand how it applies to us, I think um, is important. So this is Paul. This is his life. This is what he's modeling for them. He wants them to understand that this is what they're called to. That, that being a pastor, being a shepherd, is, is not an easy job. It's not a cushy job. Uh, if you go into pastoring because you're looking for a well-paying, cushy job, you are not very discerning <laughs> um, because it's, it's not that. Um, the day of that has passed. There was a day, actually, I know, um, if you know the story of George Mueller, he went into ministry, uh, not I don't think he was a believer. He went into ministry because where he, I think in Germany growing up, it was a paid cushy position. Uh, and and, and uh, so that's why he went in and he came to Christ and ended up being a very hard working pastor. Um, but that, that, sort of, that sort of background doesn't exist. It's a, it's a hard working job. It's not a cushy job. It's a job where you have to serve and suffer and draw and, and depend on the Lord. 
It's the hard-working farmer that gets a good crop. So Paul models that. Paul was a hard worker. He was generous as well. And here in this passage, he, he modeled for them how to live to serve others. And Paul, we know, uh, did not take a wage uh, when possible. He, he, he loved the reward of that. And, and so he would work on the side and he would be supported by his team rather than the, the planting church. He was unique in that. That's important to understand. Um, uh, he was unique in that and, and because of the nature of his call. It was part of how he wanted to increase his reward in the Lord. But the norm uh, for pastors, at least for those that uh, concentrate on preaching and teaching, is to be compensated and, and really uh, freed up to serve. But he's modeling for them this generosity, and he's modeling for them, probably for many of them, many of them would have been what we call bivocational pastors. They would have been pastors who were not uh, dedicated full-time to preaching and teaching the Word, but would have served alongside others who were doing that. And so he was modeling for them a life of generosity, a life of working, not only working for the church, but also working a job so that they could, they could bless others and, and not uh, be a burden to others. So we see that in Scripture. 1 Timothy 5 talks about this, the, 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 the different ways that elders may serve. And it says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Acts 20 instructs us about th this aspect of, really, I, I think it hints at and points to the idea of teams being comprised of bivocational and full-time guys. And I think it's a great way to do it. Um, there are churches that would some churches would say, well, they should all be bivocational, but I think 1 Timothy 5 is pretty clear that there's to be compensation for the guy that's dedicated uh, to preaching and teaching and leading. Um, but for the other guys, it, it's just to be bivocational really frees up the church, really, to have a team of elders instead of just a one elder system. And the, and the Norman scripture is a plurality, not a singularity. So a plurality of elders is really the, the Norman scripture. Um, but when you church plant, it's kind of unreasonable to expect to have two or three elders and have them all full-time. Um, and so the model of bivocational and full-time elders, I think, serves us well. I'm so grateful because in our church, that's how we operate. I'm a full-time elder, but we have uh, one other elder currently and then two other guys that are candidates that are bivocational. And they are so helpful. Pastor Jeff, you guys know Pastor Jeff. Um, he is serving you guys so well and serving us so well. Um, and he's bivocational, so he's working two jobs, really. Um, and and um, I just can't imagine, I, well, I know what it was like to work without him. <laughs> and we did that for a while. And that again, he's been such a blessing. Um, and um, I'm so grateful for bivocational elders. And, and I trust that God is going to raise up bivocational elders to add here and full-time guys that will be added and sent out to plant and so forth. But Paul's modeling to them this generosity, this, this desire to serve, this desire uh, when they're not in that role to, to work and to bless others. So that's the shepherd's life. Those are some of the qualities we see from Acts 20 on the shepherd's life. Let me talk next about the shepherd's charge, what the shepherd is responsible for. The shepherd is actually responsible for the most important commodity in the whole universe, outside of the Trinity himself, uh, Three and one, God himself, the most important commodity in the whole universe, the people of God, the precious people.
people of God. That's the charge of the shepherd, the most important commodity in the whole universe. Listen to how it says it here. It says, Paul says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. This is the charge. This is what the shepherd's called to, to care for the flock. The flock means sheep. Um, the, the church is called a flock here. The f- church in Ephesus is a flock, and shepherds are to watch over a flock. They are to care for the sheep. They are to lead the sheep. They are to protect the sheep. Uh, that, that metaphor of the shepherd is a very helpful one to, to describe what a pastor is, and literally that's what pastor means, is shepherd. And so a, a shepherd cares for sheep, cares for the flock. Um, and, and this is what we are as the people of God. We are the flock of God. Um, it's not necessarily a flattering description to be called a sheep. Um, and nowadays it's kind of a derogatory thing to, to talk about people being sheep. But that's what scripture uses. Scripture uses that metaphor of the church of God, the people of God, being sheep because it describes us. <laughs> we can be pretty dumb um, left to ourselves. We need shepherds. That's all of us, by the way. Shepherds need shepherds, too. We all need shepherds. We can stray. We can get into trouble. We can kind of just wander together and lead others to wander together into dangerous places. We need shepherds that will guide us, that will care for us, that will protect us from wolves. Thanks. And it's the flock of God that we're called to. Shepherds are called to care for this precious flock. The, the, the future of the flock is dependent on the shepherds. In this passage as well, uh, the charge is called the church of God. And the emphasis there is it's the church, the, the gathering, and it's not the building, it's the gathering of people, the gathering, the church of God. The, the, the thing that is, should kind of shock us there is it's the church of God. It's God's church. This is God's special gathering. This is, this is the people that God has his attention on, the apple of his eye. These are God's beautiful people. These are the rich and famous in God's eye. On Monday night when the Grammy red carpet is going on, God's not going to flip on the, the E! network and watch that. No, God's red carpet is the people gathered here tonight. You and me, and God's people all over the world. Those are the ones, those are the apple of his eye. This is the church of God that shepherds are called to. And, and God has infinite affection and, and, and amazing, undeserved esteem for us. It's, it, it is just amazing. The infinite God of the universe has set his affection on us, that we are called the church of God. And so this charge, this trust, of the shepherds is, is a precious one. It goes on to say that he obtained this church with his own blood. With his own blood. That should cause us just to pause and think about the price paid for the church. How precious is the church to him that he obtained the church with his own blood. God the Son, the God-man Christ, shed his holy, precious, infinitely worthy blood to purchase undeserving sinners like you and me for himself. Can you imagine if you somehow 
ended up with the flag that flew over Iwo Jima. Do you guys know the story, of course, of the flag that the Marines set up after that horrific battle on um, Mount Suribachi? Thousands of lives, actually tens of thousands, counting the Japanese losses were, uh, of lives were lost. I think the, the total casualties for the Americans were 26,000 or so. Um, six or 7,000 of those were people were, were killed. Imagine if you had that flag, how you would handle that. What would you do with that flag? What, what would you think? What that flag represents, all those lives given for that battle that was part of uh, turning around that terrible war. How precious that flag would be. How you would treat it. And, and the, the blood that was shed behind that flag. Well, so much more the church. Because the blood of Christ was shed for the church. And shepherds are called to handle this church, the, each of us in our local churches, that's precious. The blood of Christ is shed for his people. So there's a weight, there's a weight to this charge. There's an importance to this. There's a preciousness to the church that shepherds are to understand. And Paul wants the elders in Ephesus to get this, to understand what he's calling them to and how precious the flock, the church, the blood-bought people of God are to God and therefore should be for the shepherds. But there are challenges for the shepherds. There's the shepherds' challenge. Paul says here, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. That's in verses 29 to 30. There are wolves that are going to come in they're not going to spare the flock. This is the reality. This is the reality of the people of God. There are wolves out there that want to devour the sheep. It, it's, it's somewhat puzzling in some ways just to think, why? Why are, the, are there these people that have this special appetite for the sheep of God? What is it about them that's so tasty? Why do wolves want to come in and do these things? Why does it happen? I don't know. I, I think part of the explanation is the evil one. The evil one hates God and people of God, our fallen nature just rebels against God and the things of God. The world opposes the things of God. Those are, those are the explanations, but in some ways it's just, why? Why would there be these people who would be wolves? And the wolves really are, are the opposite of shepherds, right? They're, they're really the total opposite. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, right? The shepherd considers that sheep so precious, so precious in God's sight, that he will lay his life down for that sheep. The wolf is the other way around. The wolf considers himself so precious that he will lay the life of the sheep down for himself. And that's the difference between the two. They may look like, they may look the same in every other way, but it's that orientation towards the sheep that tells all the difference. That's a great way to tell the difference between a wolf and a shepherd. What do they think about the sheep? Do they lay their life down for the sheep, or do they lay the sheep's life down for themselves? It's a great way to evaluate yourself in this if you feel called. Because in some ways, the reality is every shepherd has a little bit of wolf in him that needs to be put to death, that needs to come, and come before the cross and die and, and be changed and live in Christ and live in his love. And so asking yourself, why do I want to be a leader? What am I after? 
Am I after position? Am I after prestige? Am I after just a dream? And there may be godly dreams and so forth the Lord would give us, but it can't be just that. It can't be just our ambition for a dream or certainly shouldn't be prestige or a sense of somehow I've got to, you know, if I, if I can pass or then I really feel good about my Christian life. Those are wolf-type motivations. And so the truth of God calls us, God himself calls us through the truth to, to look at our own hearts and say, well, is that what's going on? And Lord, change me. And he will. <laughs> he will. He will bring the things he needs to, to shape us, to shape leaders, to be servants. The scary thing is that the worst enemies of the church usually come from within the church. And so recognizing wolves versus shepherds is really important. Recognizing that there will be those who will who emerge from the church who will bring false things. There'll be false prophets that come. You guys probably know uh, the story, the terrible story of Jim Jones. And some of us were alive and vividly remember the pictures of the Jonestown Massacre down in uh, South America. Um, he led almost a thousand members of his cult into a mass suicide. Do you know that he was a Methodist pastor before he started the cult in a church that was orthodox from what I know? And the wolfness in him took over and it became about him. And so Paul is warning them to, to realize that these, these wolves and these false prophets might even come from among themselves and just to be diligent and be aware. But the answer for that is shepherds. Isn't that interesting? The answer to the wolves and the false prophets is godly shepherds. And so he's warning the shepherds, he's telling the shepherds, he's calling the shepherds to this character and this conduct and this charge that will make the difference and protect the flock from the wolves. Finally, the shepherd's confidence. Paul finishes near the end of this message he gave to them. Talking about his confidence and what should be their confidence as well. He says in verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. The word of his grace, the good news of Christ. Christ crucified for us for the forgiveness of our sins, risen from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and the grace of God that comes to us in that wonderful good news, the victory of Christ. He commends them to God in the word of his grace, this good news. And he says, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. His confidence, Paul's confidence, ultimately is in God and the gospel. That's the shepherd's confidence. Not in his own ability. The church shouldn't have their confidence ultimately in the quality of their shepherds, though that's very important. But ultimately in God and the word of his grace. And so Paul was ambitious to bring this word wherever he went. He says in verse 24, I did not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his confidence. He knows that that good news is going to create life. That good news is going to change lives. That's what he's seen in Ephesus, right? I mean, this whole city was turned upside down by the good news. So, of course, his confidence is there. The gospel is the most powerful and significant thing in the whole universe. 
It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It is God's plan A and only plan to transform the universe, to redeem all those who are his, to change their lives, to create churches, to save the lost, to reach greater Manchester. This good news is, is more than able to do all this. And so it's Paul's confidence. And it's to be the Ephesian elders' confidence. And it's to be our confidence as well. It is the shepherd's chief implement. Being a shepherd is ultimately all about this good news. Teaching and proclaiming it. And leading God's people in understanding and applying it. And living in its goodness. Equipping people in these things. Sending them out to proclaim and teach it to others. Leading them and living a life along along its truths and dependent on its power. Those sort of shepherds had turned Asia upside down and were turning it upside down. Those sort of shepherds and those sort of churches are turning places upside down and changing the world. Peg and I, uh, last winter, spring, took the perspectives class on the world missions movement. And it was just wonderful to hear about what the gospel is doing in places, changing cities and villages and people. I was just talking with uh, our men's group this morning about Mongolia and what God has done among the Mongolian people. Uh, a generation ago, they were totally unreached. Um, and God sovereignly did some things in history to, to change some of their cultural things that made them resistant uh, to the gospel. Um, well, I'll just tell you what those things were. What, they were nomadic, one. And two, they were immoral uh, in such a way that it was very hard to penetrate be into the, into the uh, tribes because if you were a visiting missionary as a man, it was customary and required that you would sleep with the daughter of the local tribal chief when you visited. And so if you wanted to bring the gospel there, you had some serious limitations. And if you didn't do that, you were, you were an outcast. You weren't welcome. So those things had been barriers to the gospel. Uh, when the Soviet Union took over that area, they... they forced them to stop that practice, and they forced them to live in cities. And that created the, the context to make them ready to hear the gospel. Then missionaries went in in the 80s, and God did some amazing things in the power of the gospel, like in Ephesus. Families were changed, transformed by the gospel. Uh, churches like this started getting planted and started multiplying, and now it's taking over there. There's just thousands and thousands of converts, and they are planting in unreached people groups in Asia. Um, and so we were talking this morning about the Muslim hordes now going back with the gospel to, to affect Asia. This good news is God's power for salvation. It is the shepherd's chief implement, the shepherd's confidence. And Paul wants them to understand these things. He wants them to understand these things because he wants them to be the shepherds they're called to be. And he wants them to understand these things because he understands that godly shepherds are the future of the church. That's what I believe Acts 20 teaches us. That's what I believe the scripture teaches us. That's what I believe, uh, that's why we have this value in King's Cross and in King of Grace and Sovereign Grace churches because of the word of God. Because of what God would do and does do through godly elders living this life according to the scriptures in Acts 20. So, uh, in closing, just some things to think about in light of this. One is to pray. Pray for your pastors. Pray for Jacob. Pray for Jeff. And pray for them. Pray for uh, Pastor 
Bauer as well, who's helping as well on the team. Ask God to bless them and shape them in these ways. Pray for God to raise up more elders here. Because the plan is long term that some of the elders that are serving will, will eventually phase out and God would raise up elders here. So ask God for that. Pray. God would bring along elders. Be available to, as, just as a church, just to train and help and come alongside. Be part of the process of raising future elders up. And then learn to recognize them and affirm them when the time comes. I trust that this has served you in that, and what God would call King's Cross to. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you just how you've given us instruction in your word. You've not left us alone uh, to figure these things out. This value of, of elder-led churches and the importance of shepherds is very clear here and, and throughout your word. So thank you. And I pray, oh God, would you bless Jacob? Would you bless him in his shepherding and leading of this church plant? Would you... Would you Strengthen him uh, as he walks with you. Would, you. would you give him joy in the gospel? Would you give him love? I know he ha- carries this church on his heart. Give him a love for this church. Give him energy to labor. Give him those who would come alongside as, as deacons and just mature brothers and sisters to support him. Multiply his efforts. Lord, I pray that you would raise up other elders as well that would be called to Manchester. Uh, called as bivocational and full-time elders, Lord, to, to shepherd the flock and to be part of the mission reaching this area with the gospel. I pray you'd give this body discernment and a heart to see leaders raised up and give them skill and helping and being really a place where, where they could just be a nursery, a cultivation center for future elders, for Manchester and, Lord, beyond as well, even to the nations. Thank you, Lord. This is how you do it. This is your plan. And Lord, as we ask, we can expect you to do this and even more. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.